I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daducci, and this time round, we're doing women in magic now to be clear on this i did a whole episode on witches and pointed out that they're not actually magical and i did a whole episode about the history of magic with the editor greg oh my god it's a dream who i'm assuming now is putting in some stuff you know we had a great time chatting and as i've said to long-time listeners if you go back Prior to 2020, this podcast had a completely different look and sound. It was actually Greg and I sitting there having a chat over whatever topic was the topic of the week. And several people gave us the reviews. It sounds like a couple of mates sitting in the pub just having a chat, which is, it wasn't in a pub, but that's exactly what we were going for. Thank you very much. But the formats changed and I very rarely have special guests, but on this occasion, seeing we're talking about women in magic, I thought probably the best thing to do was to get the author of Greg and Felicity's History of Magic, which you might be able to guess possibly is Mr. Greg Chapman, the editor of this podcast. Hello, Greg. Hello, Jim. Oh, look at this. I'm, I'm back out behind the mic. Yeah, I'm back. And thank you for inviting me on in front of the microphone to allow me to actually speak on the podcast. For a little change, you know, don't worry, there'll still be plenty of nonsense going on in the background that you don't know about while we're recording. I'll pop all that in afterwards. But that is lovely to be out in front of my and to be talking about the subject of women in magic, because it's one that I have quite a lot to say about. So, yes, we, we, we discussed this. Obviously, I have promoted my books and indeed our co-creation of Silent Crossroads, where Greg read out the whole book in an audio book. Thank you very much, Greg, for that. But obviously, this is our opportunity to promote what we do. And on this time round, it's Greg. So he's the expert in this area. It's safe to say that women have been associated with magic for thousands of years, probably unjustly. And usually they've been victimized about it. But that's not really what we're talking about on this occasion. And because we'd already done a history of magic, we needed a new way. In. So we had this conversation. And Greg said, well, actually, I put quite a lot of work in terms of getting women now front and center in the story of not so much magic but more the illusions the entertainment side of magic not the harry potter side or druidic wiccan types of magic fair to say that's fair to say and i mean the book that i've written is about the history of the the art of magic let's say rather than the 
paranormal superstitions of magic, although they do, of course, cross over. I have to talk in there about a guy called Reginald Scott and his discovery of witchcraft, a book that was written and one of the chapters is dedicated to showing how certain magic tricks were done back then in order to say, no, look, it's on a bit of string. It's not actually a witch. We don't have to burn this person for for locating your card in a deck of cards. But we decided to talk about the women in magic because I had a bit of a problem when I started writing the book and I wanted to make sure that I recognised women in magic and especially in the history of magic and I suddenly realised the more and more I went through, the harder and harder it is to actually figure out how to fit women into this history of magic. The first thing that I thought of doing was literally just creating a chapter called Women in Magic or Female Magicians and I just thought that's just... That kind of takes something away, the fact that I'm putting them in their own chapter, and I kind of wanted women in magic to feed throughout. And it was it was not easy because there's so much sort of... Just to question them for a moment, Greg. This is the thing, whenever we have a chat, never quite sure which direction it's going. So actually what happened with you is actually some of the advice I had when I was writing the Hollywood and History book, where, cutting a long story short, I wrote this book about how movies portray history. I ended up getting, for the first time, an American publisher... They turned around and said, you need to do a chapter on American civil rights. And it's like, okay, fine, I, I can do that. I feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'm a white guy in Britain. But they said, well, you know, it's an important part of history. So I did. And it was actually probably the most historically accurate chapter there. But they also tasked me by saying, but you can't just write about the black historical experience in that chapter because you have then ghettoized their history. I was very proud of myself that I managed to get black history in about five other chapters. But obviously it's hard to stick them in the Tudors or the Anglo-Saxon bits, but I absolutely did it. At the time, it's all like, so hang on, I have to give them special attention, but I can't give them too much special attention because then it's like, oh, what a headache. So I absolutely get where you're coming from on that quick. So rather than doing a chapter, you weave them in. So if, if you're talking about the 1700s and there happens to be a female magician on the record, you would put them in the bit about the 1700s. Is, is that fair? This was what I was attempting to do, but also not just deliberately shoehorning in a woman from magic if she wasn't one of the most potential. And really, this stems back to a couple of my biggest bugbears about the art of magic in general. Number one, I know that you've come along and seen my show about this, is my bugbear of magic tricks being used to, to defraud people, either through cheating at card games, but more to the point of when people are using magic tricks, as a lot of them did in the especially during the late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of people were using magic tricks to pretend they could contact people's dead relatives. Unfortunately, this is not something that's died out. That's one of my biggest bugbears. But my biggest bugbear with magic is the way that women have really been treated by magic. Because you'll notice, first of all, clarify one thing. The book says on the front, Greg and Felicity's History of Magic. Felicity is my wife. We make documentaries together. Greg and Felicity is kind of our brand name, as it were. It's what we are on Instagram. This book was written entirely by me. Felicity helped out, flesh out some of the concepts. And basically, I just, again, jump in there. It's a little weird that it does does say at the top, Greg and Felicity's History of Magic. And then the bottom goes, written by Greg Chapman. But once you know that Greg and Felicity is the brat, then obviously I've seen both of you do work together and, and obviously documentaries as well. It makes complete sense to me. But if there's anything you would like to clarify to the casual listener. Only from that one point of view that it's a brand, but also from the point of view that she is very useful. She always has been incredibly useful to me from a magic point of view because she can read this book as a layperson. She knows I talk a lot about the history of magic and I can tell you very, very in-depth stories of the history of magic. 
but I wanted this book to appeal to people that come to my shows and have an interest, but aren't necessarily magicians themselves. So she casts her editor's eye over it. But one of the things we have is very often when I turn up to a show and Felicity's there with me, people will come up and say, oh, are you his assistant? And that straightaway puts the hackles up on the back of my neck because what Felicity does when we get to a show, if it's a show we've booked into a venue, she does all the front of housework. She works as a director for me. She does all these things. She is not an assistant. And yet, this idea that when you see a magician turn up, a male magician turn up with a female male, the assumption is that they're going to be an assistant. And straight away, you have this very old-fashioned idea in the mind of tutus and, you know, skimpy costumes and all of this coming out and getting inside a box. And actually, I'd like to set up the premise a little bit more of what we're going to be talking about. I know you do this when you're plugging your own books. I'm going to just read slightly from the book. I'd like to read just from the, the start of the chapter about a female magician, really the first one I talk about in depth in the book, Madame Adelaide Herman, who was the queen of magic from the late 1800s. But I start that chapter with, in case you haven't figured it out yet, the majority of names mentioned in this book so far have one thing in common. They are all men. This, sadly, isn't because I've set out to write a book that excludes female magicians, but rather because the history of magic is, by and large, a history of men. It seems unbelievable in some ways that in the United Kingdom, women were given the vote on the same terms as men in this country in 1928. But it wasn't until 1991, over 60 years later, that women were allowed to join the magic circle. And then it wasn't a unanimous decision, but in fact only 75% of members voted to let women in. That is a clear majority, but it still feels like that number should have been 100%. And for me, that, that idea that women were not just... It's not just that they weren't appeared in magic or they weren't noticed in magic, but one of the biggest magical societies in the world, the Magic Circle, specifically chose to keep women out until 1991 and that even then 25% of the members who voted voted to keep women out of the magic circle 25% yes it's a quarter which is a sizable minority and I, I love that fact putting it into the framework of women's rights to vote and then putting it into the context of entertainment surely voting should come after all the other things. If, if we're sheer equality, and that was the hardest thing to pass legally, and that's the last one and everything else is fine, but actually it was more of a trigger throughout the whole of the 20th century to improve women's rights in Britain and the West in general. So that is really quite shocking. And I just also want you to throw up, because obviously you and I both know what you do for a living, and you're making sort of references to that. So please perhaps describe to people what your shows are like. So they get an idea that with me, I'm always a an enthusiastic amateur. I guess all historians are enthusiastic amateurs because none of them have actually fought in the Battle of Hastings or whatever. But you literally do stage magic. You work with your wife on this. So to talk a little bit about what the day-to-day -day is, being a magician, what is your type of magic? And then also go back to Adelaide. Let's hear more about Adelaide. Just to introduce myself, really, I actually started out as a as an escapologist when I first got started in magic. Cut a very, very long story short, I got a Paul Daniels magic kit when I was seven years old and enjoyed it for a couple of months. Probably forgot about it, always watched the programs, but then I forgot about magic until about 2007 when I first went out to Italy 
And I found out that the director of the company I was touring comedy shows for over there had his own magic library, which I then read my way through. And that's where my interest in magic came from. And I did a lot of escapology. And then as some people listening to this may be aware, about 18 months ago or so, I developed problems with my back, which means that I spend time walking with a stick or sat in a wheelchair most of the time. And what that means is suddenly trying to do a big powerful escape from a hundred feet of rope and handcuffs and chains all thrown in there my body's not up to it and so over the last year or so I've moved even more I was already into things like mentalism before which is the the basically the prince of mind reading basically doing all the stuff that annoys me about Victorian seances and the idea of people trying to pretend they can communicate with the dead or pretending they have psychic powers and full disclaimer here I never at any point in time say that psychic powers are not true or are true or anything in between. I always just say that some people are definitely faking them. Come on, Greg, plug your show because we've been talking about this and I have seen it twice now. You're directly linked to this kind of mentalism and psychicness. I'm doing that in speech marks for people who can't see it on the podcast. But Greg, plug the show and then get back to your story apologies for the interruption that's great isn't it finger air quotes they're brilliant on an audio podcast nothing works better my show next year going from probably january to about may we're looking at i'm going to be doing quite an extensive tour of what is called my non-psychic psychic show this is a show that looks into some of the methods i demonstrate some of the methods used by everyone from the victorian seances these big crazy seances up to modern day fraudulent psychics as mentioned never actually taking a view on whether or not psychic powers are true merely showing how some people could fake them if they want to and i do know at least one theater that i have performed this at in the past a few years ago told me that they had a complaint from a psychic who i will not name because psychics are famously litigious but they did actually have a psychic who was booked into form at the theatre that complained about having my show too close before theirs. And I thought, well, if you're completely honest about what you do, I can't see how that could possibly be a problem. The only way it's a problem if you're worried that I may expose something that you are doing during your show. So that's touring. If you want to know about that, then you can find the full list of details on ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Greg Chapman, and it has a listing of all of those shows. We're back actually to the the history of women in magic because actually we do end up with this weird space when we get into the early seances and especially the start of the spiritualist movement where we get women coming into the field but not as magicians, as these fraudulent psychics. And actually the whole psychic movement was started by two girls called the Fox Sisters. And the Fox Sisters one night played a trick on their parents And they figured out that by cracking a certain knuckle in their foot, in their toe, they could make it sound like there was a ghostly knocking. And this is the start of all of your seances, all your spirit ringing the bell, all these sort of things start from these two sisters. And later in the life, one of them did actually confess to what they'd done. The other one maintained they didn't. But what it meant was that women started to be using a lot of the magical powers that we'd use, that we'd associate with a magician today. Even something I said, I started out using escapology. And so someone like Harry Houdini or myself gets put in handcuffs, chains, straitjackets, things like that, and we escape. And that is the act, seeing us escape. Whereas you get the Victorian psychics, someone like the Davenport brothers, or there was a Lady Marjorie was one of the big female psychics at the time. And they would get themselves restrained, and then they would turn the lights off, 
which I'll be honest, I always think is cheating because magic would be so much easier if we could always just turn all the lights off. Here's a ball in my hand. Turn the lights off. The ball's gone. Look, it's magic. It, but they would get tied up and then things would happen around the room, crashing, bangs, all sorts of things. And when the lights came on, they'd still be secured. It's a magic trick. It's a brilliant magic trick. But these were not people who were presenting it as a piece of magic. These were people who were presenting it as real, as some sort of psychic involvement. But that's not what we're talking about today. I've gone off on a tangent onto the psychic subject. No, no that's fine. I, w I just wanted to pick up on it. It seems to me that also when you're talking about like the 1800s, and as we sort of said with the history of magic, a lot of it is problematic in the modern terms. But they're not turning around saying, ah, oh, tricking you. It's like, oh, I've learned this in the Orient and things like that. So it seems that almost... Today in movies, if it's about history, they at least say, we got a historical advisor. It's the done thing in, in terms of trends, in terms of come and see my movie. It's about history and we got some historians to look at it, whether they actually paid any attention is a different story. Again, in the 19th century, it's like if I was upfront saying, I'm going to trick you, that wouldn't be acceptable. Instead, it's a case of I'm a spiritualist or I learned this in the Orient or this has been handed down by the wild men of the hills or something. And so, A, is that true? And B, when did that start changing? When could you just flat out say, I'm going to trick you, but you're going to be amazed? Really, it's actually sort of two different approaches to the same art. And it's something that actually carries on right through to the modern day because you would get someone like, Robert Houdin, who I talk about in the book, Isaac Fawkes, who was the first magician we can actually relate to a magic trick. And when Robert Houdin went on stage, he was presenting parlor tricks. He was very definitely presenting parlor tricks. He was also presenting a whole range of automata and all sorts of clockwork gadgetry as well that was fantastic. But he was doing parlor tricks. He was doing things like the good old-fashioned Bill in a Lemon, which is one Paul Daniels very famously used to do. Basically, you take a sign bill from someone, you tear it in half, they keep half as a receipt. A little bit later on, there's a lemon, you cut the lemon in half, inside that lemon there's an egg, you break the egg open, inside the egg there is a walnut, you crack the walnut open and inside that walnut is the other half of that note. And Robert Houdin's version of that was even better because it used this clockwork tree, appearing orange tree, and I believe this is now in David Copperfield's museum. It hasn't worked for a long, long time. But basically, he'd put a little seed in a pot, and then this tree would appear to grow out of the plot, and a lemon would appear on the end of it, or an orange, I think it was in his. And he would take that out, cut that open, and he'd find stuff inside. So people always presented it. But then, of course, we get the flip side. We are kind of making the subject of this show how magic can be. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Horrendously sexist. We do obviously also have to address the fact that, yes, around the term of the century, there is no question magic was horrendously racist. And in a way that was not deliberate, in a way that was very much of its time, but there are magic books that I read now. I go back to some of the older magic books and I read them and I just think, wow, we just used terrible names for everything. There are things like there is a shuffle which is very popular in much of Asia. It's very different from our normal shuffle. You ever sit down and play cards and you sort of shuffle the cards. You think you hold the long side and you shuffle along that way. And this other shuffle is done holding the cards the other way around, actually shuffling them lengthwise. And in magic books, and a lot of old magic books particularly, this is called the Hindu shuffle. Not because, as far as I can tell, it relates in any way to the Hindu or anything else like that, but it was just that a magician happened to see a foreign-looking person performing it and decided they must be Hindu, we'll call it the Hindu shuffle. And, of course, this reaches its absolute peak with the fantastic Chung Ling Su. And Chung Ling Su was this elderly Chinese gentleman. If you've seen the film... The Prestige with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. They stand outside the theatre. You actually get to see the performance of Chung Ling Su. And he goes on stage and he's this old man, old Chinese man. He staggers onto stage and he holds up this cloth and he drops a cloth and a goldfish bowl full of water and goldfish has appeared on the stage. And the secret to that, you can watch The Prestige and find out. I won't spoil that one for you. But Chung Ling Su one day was doing all he did the bullet catch as part of his act and on one occasion this went wrong he was actually quite a lazy performer and the way his bullet catch worked was basically had a double barrel one of them would provide the flash whereas the bullet would be safely hidden in a separate barrel and then one day when he was performing the bullet catch so much debris had clogged up the second barrel that when that real flash happened it pushed the debris out and it shot Chung Ling Su live on stage at which point in time, he announced that something had gone wrong and he needed help. And he announced it, not just in English, but in a very broad Scottish accent. And for the first time, the people watching realised that this Chung Ling Su gentleman was not of Chinese descent. He was a Scotsman in, one can only assume, some fairly inappropriate makeup. Certainly wouldn't get away with it today. And to make it as bad as it can possibly get... While he was on stage, he would speak only in Chinese. Although, of course, he didn't speak Chinese. You would have thought he could have taken the time to learn it. No, he would we speak. We'll see where this is going. Yeah. He would just now, speak now, on look, stage. Brilliant. Right, anyway, yeah. To be talking about the sexism and the racism, and we're going to be talking about the women. Women. Oh, and the charlatans. We also did the shaggy. Yeah, we've done the shaggy. We are now not going to talk about any of the other context here. Let's do some impressive names that I don't know, and I guarantee most of the listeners won't know. So talk us through some of the great careers of the great women in the world of magic. Nothing to do with spiritualism or witches or anything like that. Over to you, Greg. Okay, well, let's talk about Betty Barker, because I would imagine very few magicians even know the name of Betty Barker. But Betty Barker is one of these absolute pivotal moments where the history of magic really goes wrong from the point of view of women because in 1921 the 17th of january 1921 finsbury park empire in london pt selbit takes to the stage and when pt selbit took to the stage he was going to produce his first live performance of his brand new magic trick 
Now, when I say the name of this trick, everybody will immediately get the impression in their head. And probably if I just said to anybody now, Jem, most famous magic trick in the world. I'm going to say it's one of two. It's either pulling the rabbit out the hat or because we're talking about women, sawing a woman in half. Spot on. Yes, spot on. Spot on. Exactly. Yeah. Pulling the rabbit out of the hat, sawing a woman in half. These are the two really most famous magic tricks. And when you think about the fact that one of the most famous magic tricks in the world is basically mutilating a female assistant, cutting her in half. But I want everyone just to sort of picture sawing a woman in half. And you have this picture in your head. And the picture you normally have is the assistant lays down in a box. Her feet poke out of one end. Head pokes out the other end. They then saw it in half. Very often they then put big steel blades in. And they open it up and move it around the stage to show that the woman has been sawn in half. When P.T. Selbit first presented this, it wasn't anything like that. It was a wooden box, a big wooden box, no holes or anything to get the head out of. The female assistant climbed inside, Betty Barker. This is her name. This is the name that people forget. People know the name P.T. Selbit, not Betty Barker. Betty Barker gets inside. She gets handcuffed to either end of this box. So she's restrained at either end. Her arms at one end, her feet at the other end. They close the box, they lock it shut. So at this point in time, you can't see her at all. And P.T. Selbit, the great magician, then takes out a saw and saws through the middle of the box. No pulling it apart, nothing else. As soon as he's done that, they go round, they unlock the box, open it up, and Betty Barker is absolutely fine. Now, this leaps straight to my issue with women being assistants, because if we look at that situation, there is... Two people involved in the performance. There's P.T. Selbit, the magician, and there's Betty Barker, the assistant. However, let's look at who must have had any skill at all in the performance of this trick, because one person had to close a box and then saw through a box. The other person had to, while restrained in the box, by hands and feet separated out, Betty Barker would have to escape either with the feet or with the hands and tuck herself into one end of the box or the other. This was the feat of escapology, would have rivaled something that Harry Houdini would have done. This is an incredibly skilled person. She is the one that made that soaring half trick work when P.T. Selbit presented it. But most people, most magicians I know, I speak to them, they know P.T. Selbit. They don't know Betty Barker's name at all. Because this was always just advertised, P.T. Selbit saws a woman in half. Not, Betty Barker manages to avoid death at the blade of a saw. Now, I can guarantee you, if it had been a man getting inside that box, the whole thing would have been built around the fact that there's this guy in the box. And even to bring that forward to today, one of my very, very favourite magicians, I grew up watching him, absolutely fabulous person, Mr. Paul Daniels. Paul Daniels, we all know Paul Daniels. If you remember him, if you're my age or older, you basically remember Paul Daniels. If you're slightly younger than me, it drops off quickly. But if you're slightly younger than me, you may have seen the lovely Debbie McGee, his wife and assistant. She was on Dancing with the Stars or Dancing on Ice or something like that a few years ago. And Debbie McGee was his lovely assistant. And this was how she was referred to even. So we're going back to the 1980s, 70s, 80s, 90s here. Debbie McGee was famous as his assistant, and yet, if you go back and watch some of the effects that they do together, where Debbie McGee, there's one of them I remember very specifically, she gets put inside a barrel, and it's rolling along this thing, and she's got to get out, it's going to roll down, and it's going to drop off the edge, and the barrel's going to smash to pieces. Paul Daniels' basic role in that is to 
help her into a barrel and then watch and make gestures as it rolls down. The barrel falls to the floor, smashes to pieces. Debbie McGee is gone. Absolutely brilliant piece of magic. But it wasn't Paul Daniels who was doing the magic. It was it was Debbie McGee. And this is where my issue with assistance is. I've always said that if I'm doing a magic trick, well, first of all, if anybody's going to come to harm... I just have to throw, throw in there. Sorry, Greg, but, but you've just blown my mic because, you know, there, there is that joke, you know, and the lovely Debbie McGee, which was, you know, a joke for like 10 years. But as you say, younger generation aren't necessarily going to get it. I never realized she did any of the magic. I did genuinely think that she was kind of the window dressing. And there was that famous interview with her. It was like, what first attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels? But clearly the two of them had genuine love of magic, recognized each other's skills. And that was probably the bond between the two. But it is society's bias, which has led to my subconscious bias. So do we actually have any footage of her like pre Paul Daniels, like her actually performing. There is. Before she met Paul Daniels, she wasn't actually a magician at all. She was a dancer and she was an incredible ballet dancer. And then she met Paul Daniels and she got into the magic. And there is a lot of different bits and pieces. You can find video footage various times during the Paul Daniels magic show. People forget this, but she would actually do some of the magic on her own. She would actually come out and she would do a magical slot showing that she could actually do magic. One of the other things that I've just got to touch on, and then we're going to leap back to Adelaide Herman, and I'm going to talk a little about her. But I just want to leap back. You say the lovely Debbie McGee. And these days, almost feels these days that there might be something cringy about bringing someone out as the lovely Debbie McGee. It was his wife. This is the argument I would make. He thought she was lovely. I'm absolutely fine with that. But what's really interesting is I did hear an interview with him at one point about the lovely Debbie McGee. And very, very famously, she is called the lovely Debbie McGee. That is how he refers to her, not in any other way. And the reason for that, basically, is the size of the studio stage where they were recording the Paul Daniels magic show. Because he would reach a point where he'd need Debbie McGee to bring something on for him or help him out. And if he turned around and said, Debbie McGee, he would just say, Debbie McGee, and there'd be this pause while she finished walking across the studio stage, which didn't look particularly good. The other side of that was if he went the absolutely amazing Debbie McGee, she'd have arrived, she'd be standing next to him while she's doing So the beautiful Debbie McGee was the line he said because it gave just enough time for her to start off camera and arrive next to him just in time for him to finish the introduction. And that, I think, just shows the level that Debbie and Paul went to to try and figure out exactly the best way to make their shows look. That is absolutely brilliant, yeah. And again, it shows you the precision that's going on behind the facade, which is what magic's all about. There's a lot of hard work that you're not meant to see. Okay, so if you want to, I guess uh, we're sort of heading towards the end of this. So if you want to tell me about Adelaide, please, the floor is yours to tell us wonderful things about any other sort of unsung heroes or heroines, I guess, of magic. Before I go on to Adelaide Herman, I'll finish with Adelaide Herman. But just before that, let me say that one good thing is that things are changing. Because one of the biggest problems is, like you say, you think of magic in the past, you think Paul Daniels, you think of magic on television, you've got Paul Daniels, you've got Darren Brown, you've got Dynamo, these are all male figures. We have had now, Catherine Mills a few years ago became the first woman to front her own TV series. Unfortunately, it just wasn't as big as the Dynamos and things like that. But one of the great things we are seeing is that now there are starting to get female role models out there. And one of the big reasons there aren't women in magic is it goes in a circle. The reason there aren't women in magic 
is because there aren't women in magic. And you think about that, a young girl aspiring, she sees things online, she doesn't see that female magician. And now, especially with the growth of social media, we're starting to get more women involved in magic, doing magic on there. And also, Penn and Teller's Flawless, which showcases so many magicians, they worked hard in the first series to find female magicians to come on. By the most recent series, they're finding plenty of female magicians. They are filling up numbers, which means young girls wanting to start out thinking about magic and now getting to see them. They're getting to see themselves represented women in magic. And so hopefully in the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're really going to see it equaling out. But I think we ought to go back because when I wrote the book, as I said, I wanted to include a woman in magic within the book. And so as I was doing that, I wanted to talk a little bit about Adelaide Herman. And Adelaide Herman was a female magician back in the late 1800s. And she actually started out as a magician. She started out as a magician in her own right. She trained in dance and acrobatics, and then she became a magician's assistant. And she met a man, a man called Alexander Herman, Herman the Great, who was a French magician. And by the time he met Adelaide, he'd been performing for years. He'd just done a three-year run at the Egyptian Hall. He was touring around the capital cities of Europe. They got to know each other, obviously they fell in love, and very, very soon after, they were married, she became Adelaide Herman, they started touring shows together. And she was starting off as an assistant, but she became a big part of the show, she actually took over and chunks of the show were dedicated to her, more and more so. In fact, these two, Adelaide, huge heroes of mine, because not only was she involved in sort of promoting herself as a magician. They were a, they were a double act. I liken that to myself and Felicity, as we mentioned, is our brand because we do things together. Not only that, but they also did do a whole show aimed at exposing some of the methods of one of the fraudulent medians of the time, Anne Odelia Distabar, who was not a very nice lady. She spent several years in prison for various serious crimes. They did that whole show exposing her methods, but sadly... A few years later, in 1896, Alexander Herman passed away and left Adelaide to herself. Now, had Adelaide been working purely as an assistant, that would have been the end of it. She could have gone off and found another magician to be an assistant for. But because she had already set her up with her own name, she had her own name in her own right, that meant that people knew her. She didn't have to just go and get another assistant job. She could get out on tour herself. She tried working for a little while with Alexander's nephew, didn't quite work out, and she started to tour on her own. She toured for 25 years as a headline performer. She performed on Broadway. She got to tour so much. She did the Bullet Catch Act, which, by the way, I think is one of the silliest acts in the world. Penn and Teller do a version of it, which I'm assured is completely safe. For me... So many people have died doing a bullet catch. It's just it's just not worth the risk from my point of view. But she did that. You know, she was doing these acts that the men of the time were performing really to show their, their machismo, to show how manly they were. And she was on stage doing exactly the same sort of things. She actually left a message which I think would be important. It's one of the reasons that I chose in the end absolutely not to do a chapter about women in magic in my book, but rather just to include women within the subject of the book. Because there is a quote from Adelaide Herman that I'm going to leave you with, which is, I shall not be content until I am recognised by the public as a leader in my profession and entirely irrespective 
of the question of sex. And I think we're finally reaching that tipping point now where I'm starting to get to that point where you see a magician and you don't think, wow, that's interesting, it's a female magician, but you just see, wow, that's a great magician. Jem, I have monopolised enough of the podcast. I will hand back to you to finish up. Oh, Greg, thank you so much for all of that. Fascinating insight and kind of a sad story there because of all the blatant sexism and subconscious sexism going on there as well. As always, everybody, feel free to click subscribe. Tell somebody about us. So that would be great if you could spread the word about the the podcast. Greg doesn't come out very often. You might want to tell people going, oh, you know, I actually heard the editor. He was talking sense. And it is for the record now that he is the editor. It's almost an unfair conversation because he gets to review the conversation and he can do anything he likes to what I'm saying or he's saying so he can sound awesome. And he can make me sound terrible. But I love you, Greg. You're a great guy. And it's always a pleasure when you come out from behind the the screen, the microphone, because you've always got something really interesting to say. To everybody else, I'm just going to wrap things up here by going, thank you very much for listening to this slightly more unusual episode. Absolutely, you should go out right now and buy, and I'm going to remind you of the, the title, Greg and Felicity's History of Magic by Greg Chapman. It's available, he had to self-publish, it's available on Amazon. You can get it as either an ebook or a physical book. Please, please, if you can grab a copy, that'd be great. You could stick up a review. It's already had a few good reviews, five stars, all of them. Excellent, excellent. I might have been one of those, but it's a genuinely good book. I had a good read with it. So, yes, thanks very much for listening. As always, another episode coming soon. <laughs> <laughs>